Welcome to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, where we talk about issues facing our Big Island community. Island Conversations, Sunday mornings on KWXX at 6.30 and on B97B93 at 7 a.m. Or listen anytime at kwxx.com. Island Conversations, brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916. Now, here's your host and producer, Sherry Bracken. Aloha. Good morning. Welcome to Island Conversations. People often talk about miracles, but pretty rarely do we actually see them. Today's talk story is about a pretty miraculous event. On July 14, 2016, two Mokulele Airlines pilots on their own time were flying a small private plane from Oahu to Kona. When it became completely disabled, they had to land the plane in the ocean, and they swam for 20 hours towards the Kona coast before being rescued. Today we will air part one of a conversation with pilot Sydney Uimoto. Part two will air next week with both Sydney and her mother, Andrina Uimoto, in the very most emotional interview I've ever conducted. I recorded this conversation with Sydney Uimoto early in 2017. Aloha, Sid. Aloha. Take us back to the beginning. Tell us about your schooling. Where'd you go to high school and how'd you get interested in flying? Well, I attended Kamehameha High School, Kapalama, on Oahu. I was a boarder there from seventh grade. I actually got interested in flying by attending Kamehameha because they would send you home once a month to stay with your family and visit them and see them. And at one point, I was just kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I was sitting on a plane and I was looking out and I was like, oh, this wouldn't be too bad of a job. I wanted to travel, but don't really have the money for it. So it was kind of a way to like see the world. You're getting paid for it. My senior year Christmas, mom and dad bought me a intro flight here at Tropic Flight out of Kailua. I knew it was something that I wanted to do. It was so fun and amazing. And something different. That's what I like. Well, I'd say it's something different. And actually, I remember clearly when you actually got your pilot's license, your mom posted pictures. But where did you get your flight training, all that experience, to be able to be a pilot with Mokulele Airlines? I did my flight training in Oahu, out of Kalailoa Airport, through Honolulu Community College's commercial aviation program. And it took me about four and a half years to fully get all my licenses You need at least minimum 250 hours to apply at Mokulele. And I believe I got hired with them with 257. I was pretty lucky to get hired with such minimal hours there. I think everybody else in my class had at least 700 or more. So I thought that was really lucky. (laughs) I guess. And you were excited when you got that job, huh? Oh, yeah. So on July 14, 2016, you decided to rent a plane and fly to Kona. Why? What were the circumstances? I just completed my multi-engine add-on. The next step after Mokulele, I'm looking at going to a regional airline on the mainland. And they require about 25 hours multi-time. And what does that mean, multi-time? Flying a plane with more than one engine. So usually it's a twin, just two engines. And when I finished my training... I think I completed it with only 10 hours. And so I had to find ways to get that extra 15. And we were renting the Silver Bullet out of Kona, me and a couple other Mokulele pilots. I only took it twice. And the first time we took it to Maui and back. 
And then the second time, there was four of us that wanted to fly the aircraft. So two pilots took it to Oahu. We picked it up from them in Kalailoa. And then David and I brought it back. And I decided to fly it back home that day because it was Dad's birthday. And we were supposed to go to Kona Inn, have this nice dinner. And Mom was just like, oh, why don't you just catch Hawaiian? At that time, I was so driven to finish quickly. I was working a lot at Mokulele, trying to build my hours to upgrade to captain. And I just kind of wanted, I was just on this like fast track. Every opportunity I could get, I was going to take it. And so that was one of the opportunities, and I took it. Okay, so you rented a plane from Oahu to fly back to Kona. You came with your co-pilot, David McMahon. How did you get to know David? He originally was not the pilot I was supposed to fly with. The pilot I was supposed to fly with decided she did not want to come along with us. And it's uh, actually a really trippy story. Now that I look back at our text messages, she was saying how she wasn't comfortable taking the plane, a plane that she wasn't familiar with, because it would have just been me and her, and that she was older and more accident prone, and she doesn't like sharks. (laughs) This was all said the night before. You're kidding. And, you know, I looked back at my phone and I was looking at that text message and I was just like, wow, it was just such a trippy scenario considering everything that happened. Is she also a pilot with Mokulele? She was. So she was going to be your co-pilot. She was going to be my co-pilot. And so they had to last minute find somebody and they found David. We set it all up through text message. I got Dave's number. That day, I was just texting him trying to see where he was at. Our plan was to drive together from Honolulu Airport to Kalailoa Airport. That's about a 30, 45 minute drive. And he had to go pick up his AOA badge that morning, and I was finishing work. What's an AOA badge? So AOA badge is um, kind of your security access badge for the airport. Is it standard protocol then, if you're flying a plane back over, that you would always have another pilot with you? No, it is not. I was not comfortable flying it alone. So you and David take off from Kalaloa Airport, and you're headed towards Kona. What was the first inkling of trouble? At that point, when we were noticing issues, it was David's turn to fly. I flew the first half. He did the second half. I could feel it, and I think he could feel it more just because he had his hands on the controls and everything. We were experiencing engine roughness in the right engine. All of a sudden, it kind of just died. The engine died, and we were running solely off our left engine. He kept pulling the power back, pulling it back in, pulling it back, and it was, the power was surging. Then I went and found the emergency checklist, and we were going to go through that, and I think that's when the second engine went out. Did you guys have enough gas? Was that the problem, that you were out of gas? We have no idea. Usually one of the first things that you do when you have some kind of issues, you look at all your gauges, make sure everything's in the green. And our gas tanks at that time were, both tanks were showing half full. So we didn't think it was a gas issue. And you had checked the gas before you left Kalailoa Airport. Yeah. So now you have both engines out? Both engines out. We were about 3,500 feet, not anywhere near land. We were 30, 35 miles offshore from Kona, and it's just kind of a scary, very scary feeling. I'm curious, as commercial pilots for Mokulele Airlines, even though you were not flying for Mokulele Airlines, what kind of emergency training had you and David had in the event of an emergency such as you were now obviously going to be experiencing? At Mokulele, we do do emergency procedures. They're called memory items, and basically they want you to memorize, you know, for different scenarios what you have to do. Obviously, you'll have a checklist in the plane. You're a two-pilot crew, so somebody can always read off that checklist. One will always verify. And between David and I, I'm sure that was the only emergency 
procedures that we've were trained for. But with Mokulele, we are required to always stay within glide to land. What does that mean? So there's a certain glide to land ratio that you have depending on speed and weight. And as long as you're within two miles per thousand feet, so if you're at like 8,000 feet, you have 60 miles. If you were to lose your engine, it's essentially 60 miles to glide. So you need to stay within 60 miles of land. It doesn't necessarily have to be an airport, but it does need to be land, which is why with Mokulele, we don't really go over ditching procedures. After everything that I went through now, I kind of went over that on my own and essentially just wanted to slow the airplane down. It's a fixed gear aircraft, so it's a little harder. Meaning that the landing gear is always down. The landing gear is always down. So you basically want to just slow it down as much as possible and right above the water kind of like stall it and just kind of place it down gently in. So I find it a blessing that we had retractable landing gear on the plane that we landed the water in. So you didn't have to worry about the wheels dragging in the water and causing a problem. Yep. I remember in my college aviation safety class course, we had this guy come talk to us about ditching. That's what you call when you land an airplane in water. I was so young and naive. You know, I'm not like intently paying attention to this guy. And I wish I had. I remembered only a couple things. Dave remembered a lot more. Essentially, when we decided we were going to land in the water, he handed the controls over to me because he had the door on his side. And he remembered he needed to prop open that door. And so he did that. And I remembered from that little session that I had back in college to keep the aircraft clean. So we kept the wheels up, the gear up, and the flaps up. I know there's a certain way to land into the water. I'm sure you're not supposed to go against the current. But there was waves. I believe it was like four to seven feet, Coast Guard said that day. So it was kind of rough out there. I just kind of imagined a runway and tried to land it as soft as possible in the water. That's kind of amazing because I did see the movie Sully about Sullenberger. Did you see that movie? I did see that, yes. When he was landing, it was on the Hudson River, which is not the open ocean. When I was watching that movie, of course, I was thinking of you. What he did was truly a miracle. But also, he wasn't landing on the open ocean. And I think landing on the open ocean, even though you were envisioning a runway, it was not a runway. So I'm pretty impressed that you were able to land the plane and keep the nose up so that you did not go down. Yeah, What kind of conversations were you having with the control tower before and during this? When we first lost our right engine, I gave them a call. We were on flight following the whole time, and basically that's, you don't really need to check in with them because they got you on radar and they'll hand you off to your appropriate frequencies. So we were with them throughout the whole flight. It was kind of a quiet day for us. They didn't really ask us for much. So when we lost our first engine, I called them up and just told them, We were experiencing engine issues, and that's when they started getting a little more information from us. They wanted to know how many people were on board, if we had any safety equipment. I kept telling them where we were just in the event that something did happen and we lost our radios. I think after we lost our second engine, I told them we have no power at all. We lost both of our engines. So essentially, they knew that we were going to land in the water. So I believe at that time, they said, okay, we're sending Coast Guard on the way. They didn't really talk to us that much, though, which surprised me. I don't, I don't know. But right before we went to the water, right before Dave handed me o- over the controls, I gave one last call on it. I just said, we're going down now 24 miles offshore northwest of Kona Airfield. And I believe that was the last call out they got from me. So they knew exactly where you were when you were landing in the water. Yeah. I might have said 25 nautical miles northwest of Kona Airfield. 
And I believe the last radar ping they got from us was 24.9. So it's pretty spot on. And a brief interruption to remind you, this is Island Conversations, and I'm Sherry Bracken. Today, we're talking with pilot Sydney Uimoto, who on July 14, 2016, had to land her disabled plane in the Ali Nui Haha Channel and swim for shore along with her co-pilot, David McMahon. Next week, we air the rest of the story. And we're also joined by Sydney's mother, Andrina Uimoto, who tells us what the family knew and when they knew it. It's a pretty dramatic story, one of the most emotional I've ever recorded. Next week, I'll also give you an update on both David McMahon and Sydney Uimoto. Before we get back to the rest of the conversation, here's a word from KTA Superstores. At KTA, local and fresh means you get the very best Hawaii Island has to offer. The grass-fed meats you find at KTA are raised without added hormones or antibiotics. Our seafood department is stocked with sustainable choices caught in local waters by local fishermen. KTA carries the largest largest selection of Hawaii Island homegrown produce. Our mountain apple brand is all local, so you know it's fresh and delicious. Local and fresh always tastes best at KTA. And a reminder, if you miss any part of this or any previous Island Conversations, you may download them as podcasts at kwxx.com or at b97hawaii.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the rest of the conversation with pilot Sydney Uimoto. So you land this plane in the ocean. Describe, if you can, what was the feeling like of landing a plane in the ocean? I get this question a lot. It's not like your mind is blank. I think my mind was in shock, and I couldn't really comprehend things quickly. I'm pretty sure I had to ask Dave, is this really happening? And Dave's like, this is really hap- this is actually happening. And I was just kind of like, oh my goodness. I was just sitting here looking out the window. <laughs> having such a nice flight when i landed the plane people asked me oh how'd you do it and almost kind of like god took the controls from me and guided me down you said you watched the sully movie and when he lands and you see all that water come up it is exactly like that it is exactly like that the water comes up on the windshield i thought it was a hard landing apparently it wasn't it was a good landing it was a good landing because you're sitting here talking to me (laughs) the plane was not in pieces so apparently it was a really good landing but you just hear this noise i don't know how to explain that noise it's not metal crunching or anything but it's just like a powerful impact in the movie i noted that once you get into the water you're right the water comes up on the windshield but you stop it's like a big break so i bet you guys stopped yeah, and the plane that we were in didn't have any shoulder harnesses. We were just lap belts. You know, David got the good end of the stick at that one because he was holding the door open, so he was kind of braced. And I'm over there, two hands on the controls, scared, trying to fly this plane with no power. That impact was just so hard that I hit my head on the... It's like a glare shield. And so I fractured my nose. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so... Like you said, it's just such a powerful stop. You stop, you see the water come up, and it's like a daze. I don't know. It's it's slow, but it's fast, and it's kind of white. It's just like you're in a movie. <laughs> I would imagine. Oh, David was next to me, and he, he said, come on, we got to get out. He was on the wing already, and I was still sitting there. I realized, oh, I didn't have to take anything off. My headset, my sunglasses, they were all off of me already. That's how hard it was that it just kind of flew off my head. I took off my lap belt. My shirt got caught in a screw from the storm window. So I had to pull that off. And as I stood up, it's a low plane. So my head was bent over. And that's when I realized I was bleeding. I just saw it fall onto my shirt from my nose. And I told him, um, I can't go in the water. <laughs> he said, why not? I said, I'm bleeding and there's sharks. And he said, we can't worry about that right now. 
look for the life vest. And so right behind my seat, there were two life vests. I gave him one. I took mine. We put it on on the wing, inflated it, and then jumped into the water. I'm guessing there was not a life raft on this airplane. No, there was not. Is there any kind of requirement that private planes that go over water have a life raft, or is that not a requirement? No, it's not a requirement. Okay, but at least you had life vests. Yes. But my recollection is, from what I've read, is that David's life vest was not properly functional? No, it was not. It initially did not inflate when he pulled on the tabs, and he kind of just wore it around his neck. Mine's inflated, thankfully. My recollection of time, in a sense of time, is off because my watch broke. I couldn't really tell what time it was. So according to him, it was about six, seven hours that he was treading water without a life vest. Oh, my gosh. So what happens next? I think we swam away from the plane, and we just watched the plane sink. The plane went down right away? Pretty much. Within five minutes, I would say. Yow. Yeah. I'm curious to know if you see search aircraft, and if so, how long does it take the search aircraft to get there? Tell us a little bit about what you remember. I believe my mind was going like a thousand miles per hour. I just had all these different thoughts. I was like, we're really in this situation. Land is right there. We're really in the middle of the ocean. Could you see Kona? We could see the mountain. We could not see the shoreline. So that was going through my head. I was bleeding. I was very afraid of a shark coming up and attacking me. I was trying to figure out which way the current was going. It was rough. I was thinking, oh my goodness, my mother is waiting at the airport for me. And I believe every like minute, I asked David, where's Coast Guard? And he was doing such a great job of trying to keep me calm. He was trying to get my mind off of things. He started asking me if I had any siblings, about my sister. He was trying to talk about things not relevant to the situation right now. And he did really good keeping my head up. It was pretty rough, so he had the idea that maybe we turn our back towards the waves because it kept splashing us, and all I was looking down at was, like, the blood coming down onto the life vest and freaking out, thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm going to die from a shark, a shark bite. I was crying. I might have been hysterical. I'm not too sure about (laughs) that part. But he did a really good job at keeping me calm, and he was calm. And so that, you know, that gives you kind of a sense of comfort. At least you were calm at the point where it really mattered, which is landing the plane in the rolling ocean. So, you know, you got through that. I guess 25 miles out, you're actually in the Ali Haha Channel, aren't you? Yes. Which is known for its roughness. Yes. I believe it's the roughest channel here in Hawaii. Did you see search aircraft? And at this point, you're still where the plane went down, right? You know, I'm not too sure because the current was so rough. Yeah, the current's strong. Drifting or whatnot. I think prior to us seeing the first search and rescue, I think we decided we're gonna slowly swim towards land. So we went down around three thirty, maybe four thirty. We saw the first search and rescue. I was trying to figure out what was taking them so long, not realizing that they had to come all the way from where we came, Kalailoa. They didn't come right away. You know, in a situation like that, time moves slow, right? Well, I'm sure that every minute felt like an hour when you were hoping for someone to come and save you from this predicament. So at some point, did you and David make this conscious decision? Did you discuss, let's swim for the big island? I believe he was just like, hey, okay, let's slowly make our way towards land. You know, we're not going to just sit here in the middle of the ocean drifting. And we figured out that the current at that time was taking us southwest and we would have missed Kaho'olawe and then there's no island after that so I agreed with him I figured the closer we were to land the better 
Are you a good swimmer, or were you? Did you grow up swimming much in the ocean? I like to go to the beach. I took swimming lessons at the age of four. Dad bought a boat, a fishing boat, and Mom refused to let me go on it unless I learned how to swim. So I did swimming lessons at four. I did maybe one competitive race, got first place, hated it. Told mom I don't want to do it again. So you basically did not get on the swim team at Kamehameha Schools? <laughs> no, I did not. Okay, so this was not really your sport of choice. It was not my sport of choice. Sophomore year at Kamehameha, you have to do a biathlon. So I did do swimming during PE, and then to you know finish your PE course your sophomore year, you do a, a swim and then a run. Swimming in the ocean is interesting and fun, but it's also, if there's any waves at all, it's very easy to not even see a person with whom you are swimming. If you're in a canoe, sometimes you can lose the canoe that's next to you if the waves are high enough. How did you and David stay together? In the daytime, we just made sure once I started being separated from his feet, because he was always ahead of me, so I was behind him, and once his feet started going past my head, I would kind of call out, oh, Dave, can you wait for me? And it was just everything to do with if there's a creature. I don't know what he would have done, but I'm just, like, (laughs) thinking in my head, like, if there was something by me, and because we're separated, you know, it's not by him. I don't know. You just wanted both of you to be together if there was going to be something. (laughs) Yes. So speaking of something, I understand there were jellyfish. There were jellyfish. I still actually have the scars here. Oh, you do? Oh, my gosh. Your arms. Um, Wow. I wonder if those will last for your whole life. What a memory. I I think they're fading slowly. But my first, it was uh, around sunset, and I had this little sting on my arm. And I said, oh, David, I think something stung me. And so I lifted it up, and there was like this blue gel. And so he cleaned it off for me, and we knew it was Portuguese Man of War. And I'm just thinking in my head, oh, great. You know, it's Portuguese Man of War. They're all out here. The next thing didn't happen until nighttime. I mean, it was probably after 9 o'clock, but before midnight, I would say. It was this big one right here, and it just, like, latched on. And I told him, oh, my God, I'm in pain. And so I lifted my hand up, and we only had the light from the moon. And I could see that it was white. And so I was trying to pull it off of me, and it was like a spider web. It was coming off in pieces. And so what I've learned was jellyfish, they have hooks on their stingers that they kind of dig into your skin, which is why I could not get the full thing off entirely. After that, I kind of went into an episode, a shock. I didn't know that you could die from jellyfish sting, but it was really weird. I felt like I could feel the venom going through my body, and I felt like I could feel it going to my heart, and I was telling Dave, like, oh, I can feel it going through me. I felt my heart slowing down. I got the chills. I was in pain, full body cramp, like curling up in fetal position. I think at that point we decided to rest and he was just kind of holding me. And I was shivering and I think I was going in and out of consciousness. At one point, I guess he was talking to me and I wasn't responding. But that whole time I thought I was conscious. I knew what was going through my head. I was just thinking like, oh my God, this is, this is where I die. This is it. I laid there quietly and I was just talking to God, just telling him like, you know, if this is my time, I... I understand. I'm I'm content with it. And, you know, the normal things that I think anybody would, you know, forgive me. And all of a sudden I hear Dave say, sit. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah. He's like, okay, good. You're still with me. According to him, he slapped me a couple times. Really? But I have no recollection of that. <laughs> okay. Did he get stung with jellyfish as well or just you? He didn't complain about He said he could feel them stinging him. And, you know, when I came out of the water, my arms were swollen and red and itchy 
he didn't look like he got stung by any of them. You know, in the nighttime, so we're swimming, and he's like, oh, look at these algae, they're glowing. So every time we would paddle, you know, you see everything light up. After I got stung, I kept getting stung. I was like, David, I don't think this is algae, I think we're in jellyfish. And I looked at him, and I could see his pants glowing underneath the water, and we were just like in a big school of them. And like the whole night, I told him, we need to try to swim out of it. And they were with us basically till the morning. What I learned after, I was in pain. I was like, what is the point of jellyfish anyway? I've learned that they actually protect you from bigger predators, like sharks. In what way? I guess they just scare them off. I'm not too sure. Well, how wonderful, because that brings me to sharks. I understand there actually was a shark. Yes. Friday morning, there was a shark. Dave spotted it first. Well, before that, it was such a beautiful morning. It was so sunny. The water was clear. At that point, he was getting really tired, and so was I. And so I came up with this idea, you know, we can paddle. So I said, oh, why don't we take off our life vest, blow it up, and lay on it, which would also make us more visible to the aircraft above because we'll be on top of the water with our whole bodies instead of just our heads. I was in a white shirt. So he agreed. He was like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. So we did that. The current underneath was pushing us back, but the waves were going towards shore. So I figured it would help us cover more ground. We were on top of the water, and the water was so nice and clear, I could see down. And I said, oh my god, Dave, I can, you know, what if I see something? And he said, oh, just look straight. And so I just kept my eyes on the shore, and maybe two, three hours prior to us getting rescued, I looked over at him, and I saw fear in his eyes. I was like, uh, did you see something? He's like, uh, yeah. I said, was it a shark? He said, I think so, but I'm just keeping an eye on it. He kind of just followed it and made sure it wasn't going to get close to us. And after a while, he lost it. It went away. And so we continued on our way. But at that point, you know, you you know there's a shark in the water somewhere. And we were like, hey, we're not going to stop anymore. We're not going to stop till we hit land. Maybe about 30, 45 minutes later, maybe an hour, uh, I saw the shark come back again. And this time I saw it from my own eyes. My heart was racing. I couldn't tell how far underneath it was. I thought it was about four or five feet. And it looked like a black tip reef shark. So I figured it wasn't too aggressive. But all I could think about was it's going to eat us because, you know, I had this dry blood on my face. We were sunburned and the glare from the sun, every time I would like squint or something, I feel like it would crack. So like I could smell it. And I was thinking, if I can smell it, he can smell it. And Dave said, don't make any sudden moves. Keep your heart rate down and just continue swimming normally. We did that. And I asked him, well, what are you going to do if it attacks us? (laughs) And he doesn't remember saying this to me. And he said he was going to stare it in the eyes thinking in my head, well, what is that going to do? <laughs> but he said he was ready to kick it, kind of fight it off. And so I was just like, hey, just leave us alone. I've got a couple questions about the nighttime. How were you able to keep your bearings and know in which direction to swim? There was light from the land. As you know, Big Island doesn't have very much lights here. There was this one beacon on Mauna Loa, I think. It was a big red tower that we kind of just kept our eyes on the whole time. I'm not too sure where we were relative to Kailua Kona at that time, but I swear I could see the glow from Old A, you know, the fields. I thought I could see that. And at night, it was kind of an up and down kind of battle. We thought, oh, we were getting closer, and then we thought we were getting farther, and then we thought we were getting closer, and then it was just kind of like a constant fight towards land. Well, wasn't the weather that night, wasn't there some rain and clouds that night? There were some rain. It wasn't too hard. I think there was a storm coming. Yeah, that was my recollection, and I thought about you out there in the rain. Yeah. With no moonlight at that time and big waves. 
I think they said it was a 76% moon that night. So it wasn't too dark. We could see the stars at one point. We decided to relax, so we were laying on our backs. Uh, Dave and I agreed that the nighttime was actually comforting. You would think it'd be the scariest. I thought it was going to be the scariest. You know, you can't see anything. The water's pitch black. But it was almost comforting. I don't know if it was because it was quiet or what, but we're looking at the stars, and all I could remember was what the Little Dipper looks like. I used to work nighttime ramp at Hawaiian Airlines, and when I would wait for my planes, I would sit on whatever I was driving, I would look up, and I would just look up at all the stars. And so I was just trying to, like, point out the same stars that I could see. I guess it gave me a sense of comfort, like, oh, it's the same, the same sky, you know? Wow, that's really amazing, because my next question is, how did you guys not lose hope? And I would have thought that nighttime was the time that you would have been most likely to be close to losing hope. How interesting that the night sky kept you comforted. Yeah, Dave said he saw the Milky Way. I just recently learned what that looked like, and so I can't tell you if there was the Milky Way or not. Um, We might as well believe him. (laughs) Yeah, I believe him. I believe him with anything. (laughs) It would rain every so often, not too hard, but we tried to catch water with our mouth. We would turn over and just lay there with our mouths open. It didn't help much, and I mean, I could just feel it like hitting my lips, which were super dry. At one point, I turned back over, and I lost sight of the land, and I kind of freaked out a little. And finally, I found it again, and I told him, Oh, okay, Dave, you know, if if ever you want to rest, go ahead, just rest, but I'm going to just keep us swimming, because I didn't want to do that again and not be able to really find land again. And with that, we're going to pause our conversation with pilot Sydney Uimoto, who, along with her fellow Mokulele Airlines pilot David McMahon, had to ditch their plane and the Alainui Haha Channel 25 miles off the Kona coast on July 14th, 2016. This is Island Conversations, and I'm Sherry Bracken, and next week we'll pick the conversation up again. Until then, please, let's all live and drive with aloha. Ahoi hao. Thank you for listening to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, available anytime at kwxx.com. We welcome your feedback and suggestions at info at kwxx.com. Join us next week for another Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916.